everyone. Welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect. I'm your host, Naomi Harlombach as Wilkerson. I'm so happy you've joined us. Can you believe we are on episode 10, people? 10. I can't believe it. We are 10 weeks into this. Well, okay, actually we're at, I think it's 11 because we took last week off for the 4th of July holiday and I was home. I meant to get this out sooner, but I was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm really burnt out. You know, work has, has been really picking up the pace. So I was like, I, I need to take some time for myself, which I did. You know, I took my own advice and I, I slowed down a little bit, which I really need to remember even this week because I'm going back into bad habits again and I'm getting really stressed out over the simplest, easiest things. Um, so we are 10 weeks into this. I'm so, so happy that you are listening. I know all of you were probably over the 4th of July holiday weekend. Like, where's the, ep- where's the episode? Why, why don't we have another episode this week? Like just eagerly waiting for another one. But here we are. 10 weeks into this, I'm so happy. Um, This is a great episode coming up. We have Dr. Rachel Good. She is an assistant professor at the School of Social Work at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So, so exciting. And her research interests include developing, implementing, and evaluating interventions to address racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities in obesity and eating disorders. So I just clearly read that from her bio online. But it's fascinating research, and you learn a lot more about her work and she really illuminates all of the knowledge gaps, the research gaps, and just the treatment gaps that we have for for women of color that have an eating disorder but are not able to get the care and the treatment they need for eating disorders, particularly binge eating. So I really learned a lot from her. I I had a lot of questions and I could have talked to her for hours, much like everyone I interview on this podcast. It's just fascinating stuff. So it's a good thing we have this podcast, right? Um, so I'm very excited for you guys to listen to this to this interview. She's fantastic. She's a wonderful human being. We talk about all kinds of things, you know, much much broader than just her research. We even talk about her faith and how her faith motivates her research interests and and her approach to living her life and and how freedom from an eating disorder is so important and how do we encourage that? How do we cultivate hope in our society? Because everywhere we turn, it's kind of like there's always just this bad news or this there's always this diet fad that we have to listen to. You know, keto is in now, but an intermittent fasting, which good Lord, I don't want to even go into that. Um, but I mean, what's going to be the next thing? And and we've shown time and time again that just diets don't work and, and people will, quote, lose the weight and then just gain it back again. And we talk a little bit about that in this episode here today because ultimately people with binge eating disorder in particular, they go an entire day of trying not to eat or being really good about you know upholding these strict standards that they have for themselves of what to eat, what not to eat, staying away from certain foods. And then ultimately at the end of the day, they just end up binge eating at, 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 at night. And that's just not healthy, right? And that's just an endless cycle and it's not sustainable. And you're going to have low energy. So how do you get out of that? And we talk about appetite awareness, intuitive eating, which is just a whole other fascinating field that I think merits its own episode, I think, in, in the future. And we also talk about the pandemic and how the pandemic really exacerbated this uh, for those for those with eating disorders. I mean, I myself noticed that, you know, my thoughts and my habits were 
crawling back and I was really tempted to do things, you know, just all of these unknowns. And so when we're unknown or when we're unsure about something, we try to control with something else. And a lot of times that ends up being our food or, you know, how much we exercise. And we need to make sure to take a step back and realize, are we doing this in a healthy way or are we using this as a way to cope uh, with something else maybe deeper rooted? So we talk about all that and it's, it's just so fascinating. So I'm going to hush right now and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Rachel Good. We are ready to get started. We're here joined by Dr. Rachel Good. Thank you so much for joining us on Picture Blurfect. I have so many questions, uh, but before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your educational background, your current position, and most importantly, what your lab currently studies. Sure. So I, I, I am a clinician researcher. I am a proud social work researcher. And I always like to start with that because it just really helps set the tone for how I form my questions, right? And how I um, look at certain things. And so social work is always interested in the pursuit of social justice and marginalized mm-hmm. populations, those who we have not spent as much time talking about. And so my lab focuses on... Um, a couple of things, but one of the main aspects of my work in these last few years has been eating disorders in black women, specifically binge eating and how that is largely hidden in this population. One, because we don't know much about what eating disorders look like in um, the population. And then I think within African-American culture, we haven't really talked much about eating disorders. And so there's just there's a lot of opportunity to develop and to grow um, our knowledge base and to help do some psychoeducation. So people are aware of the presence of eating disorders in the community. So it's been, uh, there's a lot of work to do, a lot of research questions. (laughs) And yeah, so my team, we've been focused on specifically these last few years. One, um, just beginning to understand the role of digital health in the treatment of eating disorders and how we can begin to reduce the disparity in access to eating disorder treatment. And so just thinking about how we can leverage, you know, some of our mobile technologies that we use so much and how that might be able to help this population get access to treatment. So I'm excited about just the work that we've been doing and I look forward to continuing. um, Yeah, just continuing these projects. Yeah, I love that. No, I mean, we're constantly on our phones now. So how can we leverage all of that technology and really make it put it put it to good use rather than just scrolling on Instagram for hours and hours? Yes. Yeah, no, that that's incredible. And I, I love what you said. I think it's hidden. I think for so long, we think eating disorders are a woman, white woman, rich, upper class problem. And that's just not true. And and I really want to broaden the conversation about it. And I I don't think people realize that it does affect everyone, regardless of who you are, your background, your ethnicity, your skin color, regardless, like everyone undergoes that. Um, So I I appreciate you like dedicating your research to that specifically. Yeah, it's just amazing. I think how, wow, we just really haven't done a very good job, I think, in our Mm -hmm. culture at just allowing 
we, we have an idea of what a certain thing is. And sometimes we get stuck. We've gotten stuck, I think, in regards to eating disorders. And yeah. it's amazing how quickly a stereotype will just, you know, yep. just go. And it then becomes the norm and the yep. dominant narrative about a particular thing. And so now we're over here trying to undo and be like, wait a minute. No, that's not true. And it's hard. It's really an uphill battle. Yeah. So um, just getting the realization that, yes, everyone can be impacted by eating disorder. It's just, it's really important. Exactly. And you touched on this a little, but your work highlights the racial disparities in eating disorder treatment, access to treatment, um, specifically for African-Americans and and Black individuals. So could you provide a little bit more context into what we do know about eating disorders in Black individuals? Um, What, why is there such a lack of treatment? Yeah. So we know that um, binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa are the two most common eating disorders in um, African-Americans. So anorexia nervosa is the, uh, the least common. So we really? uh, don't see that near as much as we see the other two at all. Um, and so when we think about the reasons, some of the dis- what we talked about before about the stereotypes, I think it influences all of us. So one at one level, when we're talking about the providers. So what we've seen in the research is that clinicians often might mistake. So with with Black women in particular, they may present, since anorexia is not as common, they're going to present with higher weight status. And so often the clinicians, the first thing that they're trained to recognize is presence of obesity and the concern about other, you know, cardiovascular disease disparities. Mm -hmm. And so they're talking about weight with these clients and missing often the opportunity to assess the presence of an eating disorder. And so in in defense of clinicians, I think what we've heard is that they don't really often feel comfortable, especially like primary care physicians and really making an assessment. And so that's our work, right, to begin to kind of get some of those resources out there so that we are going to be able to know what eating disorders look like in other populations, especially if someone does not fit that stereotype and Mm -hmm. be coming in um, underweight. um, We need to figure out how we can understand and capture it, right? And then take the opportunity also to create treatments that aren't only in specialty eating disorder clinics, because that's a major barrier um, for people. Because again, it's enough to just think about, I have an eating disorder and then they have to go someplace special. We have insurance limitations, barriers to um, just access that are very real. People feeling shame, you know, I've seen that in the research is shame about their behaviors, especially because in the culture, you know, you're not going to hear a lot of people say, oh, me too. Right. You're not going to. And I think that would be something common. Well, no, I think in African-American culture, we just don't we might just overlook it because we don't know as much about it. And so that means people will be feeling like they're alone. They're the only one. And yeah. that really creates additional burdens. Yep. Exactly. No, you touched on so many aspects of problems in the system entirely. And the issue of weight, you know, people can be a normal weight and still have an eating disorder. And doctors aren't trained or they just don't have the the background and the knowledge to point it out and see it and realize, oh, this could be an, there's an underlying problem here. So that's always been such an issue. And it's particularly 
a problem for bulimia or binge eating, you know, where they do have higher weights, like you said, anorexia, you think of someone, you know, that's, you know, stick thin and it looks like they're about to die, but that's, you could still have anorexia and be a normal weight. So as, and the whole insurance thing, oh, I could go days and days <laughs> on that. This, you know, oh, that's just crazy. <laughs> Um, what, what, one of my other questions was you have a recent publication in the International Journal of Eating Disorders, and it was a, it was a fascinating systematic review that focuses on this problem of racial disparities. So for the non-scientists out there, could you explain what a systematic review is and then what you found? Sure, sure. So what we do in systematic reviews, what we do is we want to find all the literature on a particular topic. So we are more thorough than I think you would ever think you need to be, but we have, so we scour the abstracts for presentations. We scour journal articles. Um, we look as much as we can to just trying to figure out anything that has been published about a particular topic. And so for this paper, we were wanting to know what do we know about binge eating in black women, binge eating, binge eating disorder. What do we really know? And to kind of be able to set ourselves up so we can understand where we need to go. What do right. we still, and there's a lot that we don't know, but what the paper showed us a couple of things that they have similar or higher rates of binge eating and binge eating disorder as compared to other racial and ethnic groups. So that's maybe one of the first misconceptions. Oh, we broke that, right? We know these eating disorders that we see and everybody, they're the same. And, you know, we see them just as much in Black Americans. Mm -hmm. We also, though, had more evidence to understand maybe some of the factors that influence binge eating, right? So understanding just the role of um, ethnic identity, how that could be a protective mm -hmm. factor, being able to understand depression and stress and discriminatory stress or the roles of racism and how that may influence right. binge eating. We also saw that um, there's a disparity in treatment, right? And just like we were talking about, um, we don't have a lot of information on whether or not the treatments that already exist in the systematic review, we weren't able to really pull a lot of papers because there hasn't been a lot of treatment studies that have included African-Americans. So I think what the paper did leave us with is just a notion. Okay. So we know this is a issue in this population. Um, they have fat, you know, there are things that affect the development of eating disorders that might be different than what we see in maybe the majority population in this country. And we definitely need to include them in our clinical treatment trials and yeah. see, so we can learn more about how our current treatments impact them. Right. right. It's kind of it's kind of a no brainer. But at the same time, it just hasn't happened for all of these years. I think that's what just boggles my mind, like clinical trials. The pool that they select is not reflective of the actual population. Yeah. And you see that in, in academia. You see that in science. Like we're still trying to get represent equal representation among women and among all racial ethnic groups. So it just, it drives me crazy, but I didn't think of it in terms of eating disorder treatment. So I'm so glad that you narrowed in on that topic specifically, because we do need more information. So I'm so thankful that you did that, that review and were able to systematically pull what was there. And then here are some of the glaring gaps. Yeah, it was, um, it's always helpful. I think as a researcher, I was advised just to kind of be always start 
in with a good systematic review. And if one hasn't been written on your area, you do take the opportunity, right, yeah. to set the tone because it just helps set you up. So you already you you kind of sit deeply with the work and you can understand the, the field and what's been done. And sometimes, you know, we maybe haven't had the opportunity to realize, oh, they have answered this question, yeah. maybe in a different way, but okay, I see this question's been answered. So let me just take the time and really understand where do we need to go next? What will be exactly. most impactful? So I really feel like the systematic review helped me kind of understand what some of the real needs were. Right, right, exactly. And one of your other research interests is to explore why, the, the why behind binge eating um, in African-American women. So are you any closer to figuring out the answer to that question? Um, I think I think I am. Um, I think a lot of it was, so we did some, semi-structured interviews with about 20 Black women who reported binge eating behaviors. And we were able to see, one, we understood the impact of stress, impact Mm. of um, food insecurity. That's something that we maybe didn't, we're learning more about, but just understanding what that means when you may not know where your next meal is coming from at certain periods of the month. Right. So how that might affect your patterns of just kind of maybe restricting for period. And then, of course, when food access is restored, you might overeat to compensate Mm -hmm. for what you know, how hungry you've been. And so that has just been an area we're trying to think about how how we can really help individuals in that circumstance. And then with COVID-19 and um, the dual pandemics that, you know, African-Americans are facing with racism as well as, you know, increased um, risk at obtaining COVID-19, I really see how just being in that environment and kind of having to carry the weight of the world yeah. on the shoulders for many Black women being caretakers, you know, having just fear, anxiety may often be essential workers. So on the front lines right. of this pandemic, we really can see how eating might serve to comfort, right? It might serve to soothe. It just may be something that I think culturally we have evidence that just eating is a way for black women to kind of begin to kind of speak the things that maybe they're not able to say, but they can, you know, sit and eat and kind of get Mm -hmm. that comfort and, and have the ability to be cared for in a way that maybe they don't experience in larger society. Right. No, that's, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Have you had trouble because it is sort of hidden and there is a lot of like history behind it. Have you had trouble recruiting people for your studies and your surveys? Yeah, I have. Well, I've had to think about how to recruit. And so this might be something that I think as a social worker, we're trained to meet people where they're at. And so the hard part is for many black women, since they don't know a lot about eating disorders, they Mm -hmm. are going to be more focused on weight management. And they're going to be more focused on that area. And so I know traditionally and more recently, you know, often eating disorders and weight, we don't really, we're not, we don't get along as well as, (laughs) you know, we, um, I think we need to. Yeah. So what I have seen is that the women there, that's where they're at. They're thinking about weight. And so how can I go to where they're at 
and then use that as an opportunity to start to discuss, hey, did you realize that some of this, let's just focus on your eating. Let's just talk about that for a while instead of, you know, knowing that they will make a decision about what is best for them. But when they come to my study, we just take the time to, so we draw people in who are interested in weight, but then use it as an opportunity to kind of help set the, that foundation that's going to help them with their relationship with food, help them yeah. understand, you know, some of the, the things that get in the way of them, you know, making some of the eating choices that they would like to make. And just, I feel like just kind of give them their foundation back so that they are able to, you know, whatever decision they feel like they need to make in regards to weight, at least in, um, our treatment programs, they're able to get the care and support that they need in order to go forward. And so I think um, what I have seen is that when I cast a broader net, I'm able to then kind of find the women who are, you know, struggling with binge eating. And rather than if I just maybe focus specifically on binge eating by itself, it's not to say that doesn't work, but it doesn't work as well. So, um, yeah. So we have to just be a little creative, right? And yeah, that makes sense. And it's all about reframing their entire approach and the way they view food. And I guess that speaks to why your lab is called the living free lab. The I, I love that because you want to be free from, you know, the constraints that you put on yourself when it comes to eating disorders. Uh, so that ma- that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate that that approach to recruiting So another thing that you've studied before is the impact of childhood trauma on binge eating in black women. Um, What have you found there? Yeah. What, what we know, I think in um, many different racial and ethnic groups is that trauma, sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. um, emotional abuse, those things are predictive of disorders later in the road. And so for African-Americans, what we see is childhood trauma, you know, and we compare individuals who maybe had experienced two to three events of childhood trauma versus one. And those okay. who had experienced two to three had higher rates of binge eating, um, wow. in example. And so it's just, I feel like we're like a puzzle. We're putting the pieces together and starting to see. And though we knew this in the general population, we hadn't really had many studies where we examine this in black Americans. And so beginning to kind of just, okay, let's see what we know. Is this hold up? And then so that we can learn more as we customize our treatment programs. Oh, wow. No, that's, and so I guess related to that, um, on the previous episode of the podcast, we discussed suicidality and the rates of suicide among those with eating disorders. Do we know the breakdown? Like, is it higher or lower um, based on, you know, the data? Like, has there been that study where we like broke it down by demographics and racial and ethnic groups to see if it affects one more than the other? Yeah, that now... That I'm not certain about when it comes to, I have not seen, I know when I pulled a systematic view, I did not see um, a study on that. Yeah, so the, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not certain that we know a lot about how eating disorders might be related to suicidality in yeah. African-Americans and what kind of that is like. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. But it's all interrelated and goes back to your point. We just don't know a lot. Oh, yeah. That's just so frustrating. And I guess that's why we need more researchers. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they owe me. Definitely. (laughs) And a lot of your publications and your research also focus on something several people even I know a little bit about it because I'm familiar with the field, um, but many people don't fully understand appetite awareness. So could you explain what that is and then its influence on treating black women with eating disorders? Sure. So I think maybe the most common um, example of training appetite awareness is what we know about intuitive eating. Yep. So the program is really just helping people to honor and adhere and be aware of, right? Because we need, that's the, maybe the first thing is how do I even know my signals of hunger and satiety? Yes. And so often in individuals with eating disorders, some of their ability to be aware of those bodily signals is um, diminished, is reduced. Mm-hmm. And so part of appetite awareness is beginning to reconnect people with their bodies because for so many years we have learned to not listen to our bodies, I think for survival, sometimes we have had to disconnect um, and people just, just, uh, uh, can't right now, yeah. you know, poverty. I can't listen to whether or not I'm hungry because mm-hmm. I don't have access to food right now. Yeah. Um, just different, different survival techniques. But w- even though what we've seen is that often with individuals who struggle with binge eating, one of the things that is kind of off is their ability to regularly eat, you know, and to kind of set themselves up to eat. Right. So that's one of the first things in appetite awareness training. It's a treatment developed by Linda Craighead. And so one of the first things that she offers and encourages people to do is begin to develop an eating behaviors of, you know, three meals, two snacks, very common in cognitive behavioral therapy. But I've really found that it's some, a point because often what I've seen in many of my participants is they do not eat regularly. And so they will go long hours. And then at night, that is the time when they kind of make up for what they've missed during the day. And it leads to increased binge eating. Yeah. And it may, you know, just increase the eating episodes that aren't wanted. And right. so to be help a participants to kind of eat regularly and then to help them see and understand what is hunger. Well, let's go back. You know, we used to yeah. know what it was. Yeah. No, as children, as babies, yes. they know what hunger is, but we get socialized out of it. Yeah. And so I think about, you know, I have a two-year-old and, you know, he knows when, he, when he's <laughs> hungry and he, he, I couldn't feed him anymore when he was full, especially as an infant. Like he would not, he didn't want any more. Yeah. And we start, we all start like that. But right. then life happens to us and we start to learn some other reasons why we might eat or some people loving loved ones, you know, try to encourage us. Oh, you haven't eaten all the food in your plate. Something must be wrong. Yeah. And, you know, meaning, well-meaning, but it gets in the way of our ability to be connected to our bodies. And then a good, we face traumas, we face you know, adversity, we get socialized into diet culture and all of a sudden we wake up and you, me being hungry or me being full has nothing to do with why I eat. And how are we going to think about having a long-term relationship with food if with our bodies, if we're not listening to them? 
Um, And so that really the treatment, I love it. And I feel like my participants have really loved it because it, it gives them permission to listen again, to Mm -hmm. kind of draw back into the things that matter most, you know, your voice, your voice, um, to be able to listen. And so I've really seen, you know, we found that it's feasible and acceptable in the population, meaning that people, it was it made sense to the participants. They liked it. And we yeah. saw the preliminary evidence that it did, did help reduce their binge eating behaviors. Wow, so, you know, so definitely continue to do more research. Um, but we see some hope that it might be a potential treatment that black women like they get and that makes sense in their environment. Oh, that's so encouraging. I'm so glad to hear that. I know I I was taught to do intuitive eating too in, in recovery. It was the hardest thing, especially when you're trying to gain back the weight. And so your body is in a deficit for all those years. And so I would finish a meal and then a half hour later realize I'm hungry again, but what do I do? Like, this is not normal. And then I have to honor that hunger though. So being able to get up and go grab a bag of pretzels, that was a big win for me. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's things like that. And I come from a Greek family, so it's always eat this, eat this, eat everything, like all the time. And that, that I'm sure contributed to my fear of some foods, um, like, oh, you don't want to get fat or, you know, that kind of thing. And right, it's... Right. So it's, it's all kind of together. So appetite awareness and intuitive eating, it's all related. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that it's been going well and it's received well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it has been. I think, I think everyone wants relief from mm-hmm. that, those external forces, that external voice of the dieting world telling yep. you, oh, you can't eat this, can't eat that, you know, like that has been really oppressive really oppressive it's terrible. and I think consistently we are like, we want to be free, right? We want to be free of feeling enslaved to the rules, yes. feeling enslaved to having it be a certain way, because of yeah. course life is never prescriptive. It's always right. a surprise. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and what people often find is how do I eat when the midst of surprises and changes and uncertainties, how can I have a relationship with food that can help me live in that world? Cause that's the yes. one I'm in all the time. Exactly. So how, yeah. How can I, how, how can I do this? And so I find that intuitive eating and the appetite awareness training program really helps give people those skills yeah. and those training wheels. And speaking of, you know, you can't really plan for life. Did the COVID-19 pandemic affect black women more like with, with eating disorders and binge eating? Did you see higher rates of that during the pandemic? Well, we did. So in our, we were interviewing people in the semi-structured interview. They were women who already struggled with binge eating. And what we saw is that from their report that they were having more increased struggles. And that maps on to what we've seen, you know, kind of across the world when it comes to the research on eating disorders. It was harder. People struggled. They didn't have access to their protective factors, their supports, and then their structure. Their whole world was different. And then they also yeah. had more time in triggering environments. Yeah. You you know, I heard my participants often say, you know, the refrigerator was steps from me at all times. So how hard that was for them to really begin to just kind of keep doing the things that they found helpful to do when 
a very triggering resources right there. And they yeah. were fearful of leaving their homes, yeah. you know, managing again, increased racial stress. You yes. know, um, so if food is a coping resource, then this was a time when we saw snacking and eating kind of increase again in the United States nationally. But what I've heard from the woman who participated in my study is that it was really hard. It was really mm-hmm. hard. And they wanted to reach out to what they knew would soothe them. And yeah. for many of them, it was food. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's, I know when COVID-19 pandemic hit, there was a lot of thoughts going on in my head. But like when gyms closed, that's when I really had to take a step back and realize, am I using the gym to just burn calories or am I doing it for health? Mm. You know, I, I can't. And that's where you have to really like have that self-awareness to say, am I using this appropriately or am I, is it another coping mechanism? Yeah. Um, that so I, I just can't imagine, you know, and they, I live in a house, so I do have distance from a fridge or whatever, but think of those in the studio apartment. Right. It's just right. right there. Right. So all of those things, oh, I'm so glad we're nearing, hopefully the end of the pandemic, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. um, so what are some of the other research gaps in the field that in your opinion merit increased attention? They need more funding to help reduce the racial disparities in eating disorders for, for black individuals. Yeah. I think one that comes to mind is just where people get treatment for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we think about, so if we already know there's a disparity for accessing, you know, treatment providers, and now with telehealth, you know, that could be a different, I think we have treat, we don't have enough people who specialize in eating disorder treatment, right? Um, period, right? right? We don't have enough clinicians that I think are, who are identified with being black, you know? So I think that's another yeah. thing people want to see representation. They want to see someone who often looks like them. So that's yeah. another barrier. We also have to think about how can we use places where these women go every day, you know, like they go all the time. How can we use these community sites, these community resources? How can we even use primary care offices to maybe be places where it is common? It is not you know, just like it is common for them to give them advice on how to treat diabetes and obesity. How can we also create an environment where it's common mm-hmm. to get help for eating disorders? Right. And then I think we need to also look at the role of self-help books. What we see, especially in binge eating, is that self-help resources can be a great, great line of defense, be a great um just a great place for people to begin to get help and can be really effective in regards to binge eating um, and binge eating disorder. And so to really begin to encourage people to how can we look at how we can use self-help resources to begin to reduce some of those disparities? Because I've had participants ask me, well, where do I go? What do I do? What's the first stop? And if I'm not running a study, you know, and they are maybe don't have insurance. And, you know, so that's often first, the second, where, where are we going? And so yeah. I have found being able to refer people to certain self-help resources has been a great stand in and might be really helpful to help people kind of get the help they need. Oh, that's great. So for people listening, what are some of your go-to self-help books that you recommend to participants? Sure. So Overcoming Binge Eating um, by Chris Fairburn. It's a very common text. I often encourage people to look at the Appetite Awareness Training mm-hmm. Workbook. It's a self-help workbook. Um, 
And then there's another one on dialectical behavior therapy, another workbook that for binge eating that I often also encourage people to look at just so they can understand like, what is it, right? Right. What, What is it that I am having, what do I need? And it gives you a good place to start and kind of gives you the language and terms to understand what is needed. Yeah, that's, I mean, we live in an era that's just full of misinformation and misconceptions. So having those resources that are good um, is so, so important. So I'll include those in the episode description so people can link right to it and read them. Um, I think that would be helpful. Um, So one of my other questions is is that you are also a co-investigator on a study and you mentioned it a little bit that you want to leverage the innovative technology in our culture today to try and help educate and train healthcare providers and public stakeholders about eating disorders in Black individuals. So could you explain that work and the ultimate goal? Sure. So the grant is through SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. And what the grant is to provide is to create a national center of excellence of eating disorders. And so it's housed at UNC, and I'm one of the key content experts. And so what we have begun to create is just a training place. So anyone, whether you're a clinician, whether you're a family member, whether you as the patient want to come and get a little bit of guidance and help, we have being able to create a library. We do have a couple of things, a library of vetted resources that the key content experts have kind of examined that you can come and kind of go first stop and get some information about eating disorder training. So if you're a physician, you can come and learn more about training, receiving training for eating disorders. We have webinars. So every month there are one or two webinars that are offered monthly. And then they are, uploaded to the site and people can get continuing education credit for free to watch an hour episode on a variety of different topics related to eating disorders. So it's really just a great resource just at your fingertips. You can go and either, you know, to the library or you can begin to look at some of the webinars that we are beginning to collect to talk about eating disorders and athletes yeah. I just did one on eating disorders and African-Americans, eating disorders and Latinx populations, yeah. um, primary care. Those, those are just some of the things that are coming to my mind. But we have and we're continuing to grow the resources so that we really can become a center that individuals have access to what they need to begin yeah. their education on eating disorders. Oh, I love that. It's just so needed. So, and what are some of your other like aspirational goals? Like, do you envision like an app or everyone can just like have all those resources and rather, I mean, it's the same thing on your computer, but for some reason, everyone just does it on their phone nowadays. So like if it wasn't an app, maybe more people would have access to it. <laughs> yeah. I think The vision, I think, right now is to build, make it just continue to build the wealth of information so that if you look up something, you see it there um, and people just be able to because there's so many, there's so much out there on eating disorders that maybe everything, though, isn't always the best resource, right? You have to vet some of these resources, you know, with social media, everybody's an expert and nobody's an expert. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard sometimes to know what is the truth. What, what, what can I trust? And so to be able to have a place where we have spent that time 
you know, looking through the resources and determining you can trust this. Like we vetted yes. it so that you can feel comfortable getting this help, especially I can think of, you know, parents are getting help for their children, you know, mm-hmm. and the desperation you just want to know this is good. This is a good fit. This is going to help and just be able to get that information. So, exactly. yeah, exactly. No, that's wonderful. So shifting gears a little bit, I love that you, because of course I, I, I stalked you on social media and, and, and all of your, your research. Um, I love that you are open about your faith. Um, how does that motivate your approach to your research? Because uh, I don't think, I think I, I've experienced this in graduate school. People automatically think you're a scientist or you're in research. You don't believe in God. Mm. Um, and I think the opposite. I think the two go hand in hand. (laughs) So um, it's just interesting. And I found it really inspiring to hear you talk about your faith so openly and was curious how that motivates you in your work. Yeah, I feel like um, my religion gives me hope. Mm -hmm. And I think we see a lot that takes that takes from our hope. Right. I think in science, sometimes I see things and I'm discouraged, <laughs> you know, discouraged <laughs> about, oh, is this ever going to get any better? Right. Are we going to get this treatment? You know, we're having these big problems with people being able to get the help they need. Like, right. what can I do? Um, how can I really help? And I think sometimes you can easily kind of get into a spiral where you, yes. you just go, oh, forget it. Why should I even try? But I think my faith gives me, pushes me to know, yes, I believe that there is hope. I believe that um, you can live a life where you do not feel bound by your eating behaviors. You can actually feel free for, you know, you can actually feel like you don't wake up every day thinking about this. Um, And so I use my research to help take us further to that place, right? To kind of help create opportunities for people to experience a sense of that possibility in treatments and programs. I think my faith just gives me, it forces me to not quit. I think, um, especially when it comes to things that we don't have answers for right now, you know, I think without the faith, you probably like, well, for, you know, we might as well, maybe science would say, we don't, this, this is not going to be fixed. Right. But right. I guess my faith is like, well, I actually, I believe that it can be. And I have to continue to, again, with that help push forward um, right. because people need it. You know, we, we, all, we need more hope. We need mm-hmm. to believe that, you know, this isn't something that is unsolvable. This isn't something that is not going to change and I have found that, you know, my faith has given me that, <laughs> that yeah. hope and that ability to kind of see with new eyes. And I want to be able to help people do that in their lives. Yeah. No, I love that. It, it gives me a sense of purpose. And I feel like I'm facilitating God's plan. Like he mean, I may not know it fully, but I'll do what I can to help facilitate whatever his vision may be or whatever goal that we want in our society. And I hear you on the, everything is just so negative. Like I live in DC right now and everything is just, you know, everyone sucks and wants your money and that's it. Like That's the bottom line. But for some reason, like I just, I mean, I do get grouchy sometimes, of course, but, you know, I have a different outlook on life sometimes. And I I think that derives a lot from my faith. Um, 
So I really appreciate that. Um, and you touching on that, I think that's just really important. And it's just interesting to hear people's different approaches to research, to life, um, and, and to give people hope. I think, especially for those with eating disorders, I know how alone it can feel. Um, and if there's something that you can say or do that will help them feel not alone, um, that's, that's a win. <laughs> that is a win. Oh my goodness. That's a win. Give people life. Exactly. One more day of life. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I know you don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm going to end with one final question. Um, what would you say to someone, particularly Black individuals, African Americans out there, maybe listening and they're just too afraid to seek help or they just don't know who to talk to or even if they should talk to someone about their struggles with binge eating or disordered eating, whatever that may be, what would you say to that person? I would say I, the first thing that comes to my mind is get a book read first, <laughs> read about it um, before you, because you may not feel comfortable talking to anyone at this moment. And I, that's okay. It's understandable, but learn as you educate yourself, I think it will help you understand what your next step needs to be. You know, if there is um, a therapist that you are privileged to maybe, you feel like, like you may want to contact, you're not sure, Take the next step, you know, just to reach out and maybe have a exploration call. You know, just it's a, you know, you don't have to pay for that, but just to get a feel for what it would be like to talk to someone um, about your concerns. I think I would encourage you that you're not by yourself. And and it's hard because people who love you probably are going to say some things that are going to hurt you and aren't going to be helpful all the time. Right. Because they don't know either. Right. <laughs> right. But um, be encouraged. You can recover. You can. And I would, yeah, I would first seek to educate yourself and to read a little bit so you can understand kind of what some of the things you are facing and how you are, um, yeah, how you're doing with it. And if it is in all in your power to eat regularly, I know there's a lot of advice to all types of things, but Ugh. if you can try to give yourself permission to eat, a, eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, you deserve it, you are worth it. And it is not too much to ask um, for you to begin to do that. It will help you greatly. Yeah. Oh, I love that advice. It's just so, that's so great. Especially for those out there who may be listening, who, you know, are just overwhelmed with people telling you what to do. Like your family is like, you need to do this and this, and you need to eat something and just shoving it down your throat. I know how just crippling that can be. Um, it's just so hard. But, and when I went to grad school, my eating disorder, I guess I, I relapsed quite a bit just with all the stress and the different triggers that were around. But the fact that I found a therapist and I reached out to her and I took that first step made so much difference. And that's why I'm here today. I, I firmly believe that. And I will never forget how she told me to don't be afraid to take up space, your yeah. voice, your body, everything. And I need that. And I want people to know that too. So it's hard to take that first step, but it's so worth it. And I love your comment about getting a book. If you can read and educate yourself, that's, that will go a long way. That will go a long way. 
Yeah, I just read today, um, Anne Lamont. I really like her as a Oh, I love her. And she was talking about, she was quoting someone else who talked about the process of unfolding yourself. Mm -hmm. We fold ourselves into these boxes, into these things, and to really try to be, put yourself in and give yourself opportunity to unfold in different ways so that you are able to be completely unfolded and just free, you know, kind of exist. And so just to give that opportunity to yourself, you're worth it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love that. And that's just the perfect way to end the conversation. Thank you again so much for your time, for all of your members in your lab. Uh, I know how much work that goes into research and and recruiting people, analyzing the data. I know all of that, Um, but it's just incredible work. And I know it will go far in terms of how we can improve treatment for eating disorders, particularly for African-Americans. I think that's just so under-researched and I'm so glad you're paying attention to it. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I think we'll end it there. Thank you again so much. Wow. I really enjoyed this. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Rachel Good. What I'm going to do is she had so many terrific resources that she mentioned, and you should check out her lab, The Living Free Lab. I will include all of those links um, and the authors and the books that she mentioned in the episode description, so you should be able to access those and read up more on those uh, on those books that she offered. I think it was such a good point that she brought up is that a lot of people just don't know where to go in terms of, you know, I do want some help, but I don't know where to turn to. I don't even know enough about the condition that I think that I have. What are some some resources that I can turn to? So I think that's a gap that we can't we as the public and, and researchers can really help fill. We just need a better form of communication. So that's one great way to that podcast can really help fill that gap. Um, and then she discussed, you know, and we've talked about this on a lot of different podcasts on the just the lack of funding and the lack of treatment for eating disorders, particularly, you know, just the immense racial disparity that we see um, in eating disorder treatment. And I feel like that really just needs to be addressed. And so I'm going to nerd out for a second here. Um, today, the um, House Appropriation Subcommittee, uh, the Labor, Health and Human Services and Education Appropriation Subcommittee, oh, that's a mouthful. So this is the committee that funds NIH, the National Institutes of Health, which is the primary funding agency that gives a, a ton of money to all researchers across across the U.S. to do all sorts of research, including eating disorders. But as we've discussed several times before, there's just not a lot of funding that they give out um, for eating disorders specifically. You know, there are different institutes within NIH, and there's not one dedicated solely for eating disorders. Um, wouldn't that be great? Um but, you know, it's, it's kind of distributed across the different um, institutes and centers. You know, there's some for mental, there's one for mental health, and that's where a lot of the funding comes from. But today, in um, one of the appropriations reports, there was some language in that report that indicated that NIH should increase funding and support for eating disorder research. And I've seen this 
I also last year as well, which I found very encouraging, very refreshing. Now there is a caveat. Report language does not hold any statute authority. There's no legal authority. There's no enforcement mechanism in place that can force funding agencies to follow through with what the committee of the House says. So it's not like NIH has to do this. It's just, you know, hey, we strongly encourage this. And if you don't, we'll, we'll kind of give you the, the, you know, shake our head in, in disappointment. But it's not like they'll be, they'll have consequences for not doing it. But at the same time, funding agencies really look to these reports to see what the House and, and the Senate prioritize. So the fact that eating disorders are in there, granted, it's just one paragraph in 480 pages worth of, of directives in that report. But it's to start, right? And I think that's that's something. And I think we need to keep up the pressure. And I think we need to continue reaching out to members of Congress, you know, and, and policy nerds like me to just raise more awareness and, and researchers need to continue working on, on their on their projects, but also be more willing to communicate about the implications of their work and the potential that it has for treatment and improving treatment. Um, so that's a little bit of a, a policy blurb. And if people are interested in learning more about appropriations, about what the difference is between an appropriations bill versus an appropriations report. I'm happy to get into that. Um, shoot me an email and let me know and I can have an entire episode on it, but I would have a feeling that I would lose some listeners because it can be kind of boring. So with that said, I just wanted to let you all know that I think that's great news and I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, I, it's on the Twitter feed and I, I think, you know, we're still waiting on what the Senate is going to say. So the way appropriations works, the House gives gives their recommendations, the Senate now gives their recommendations, and then they have to come together and decide, okay, now we need one set of recommendations to give to the president, and what is that going to be? And that's where they kind of put their heads together and figure out moving forward. So that's we're still kind of ahead of the game here because the Senate is always way behind on everything. So still a ways away on what they're going to say, but it's encouraging to see the House um, incorporate that language. And Overall, I think it's conversations like this with Dr. Good has just been inspiring. And I think, you know, I wish we had more researchers like her that are willing to to get out there and to recruit individuals that are, are suffering and, and really illuminate the, the disparities in treatment for eating disorders, especially in in black women. Uh, I think that's that's such a problem. And I'd love to see research extended to black men. You know, I, I don't think we have enough of that data even to even understand what what it is and what what is the prevalence of that so that's a little bit of my thoughts um, again just as a reminder 10th episode if you like what you're listening to please rate and su subscribe and review leave me a nice comment uh, i know you all love me um, but and spread the word you know this podcast needs some love um, and we want to make sure that everyone gets the word out on on the importance of the science and the policy implications of eating disorders um, and i think that's about all i'm gonna say oh and of course i have to give my weekly reminder to always remember to be kind to yourself and i I kind of need to take this advice myself because I'm just really racking my brain lately with work and, and stress and we're planning a summer vacation where I'm going to be gone longer than just a weekend and I'm, I'm a planner so I'm kind of freaking out and anxious you know what do I pack what do I do I'm just nervous COVID restrictions make me nervous um 
so all of that just oh and i really don't want to leave my dog you guys i really don't want to leave my dog like i cry just thinking about it so please send your thoughts prayers and, and casseroles over to to my house over here in virginia because i am really freaking out about leaving my dog for the first time uh but it's gonna be okay i need to remember and i need to remember that when i am stressed out to not resort to not eating. I tend to do that. I tend to like, oh, I can't, I can't eat. I can't eat my lunch until I finish XYZ. And it's like, you know what? You're going to be a whole lot more productive when you have your lunch and then just get to your work, you know, but so you can't sacrifice food uh, for your to-do list. And I need to remember that. I need to remember to just be kind to myself because I'm doing the best I can and we're all human. And if I need help, if you need help, please remember it's okay to reach out. I'll talk to you guys next week. Please take care of yourself and I'll see you soon.